Good afternoon. You've got Living Writers. I'm Tia Hetzel, and today I'm so pleased to have in the studio with me Christopher Hebert. Welcome, Chris. Thank you for having me. <laughs> um, it's very exciting that you're here. You're you're up from Knoxville, Tennessee, um, if to, and you're going to be read at Nicholas tomorrow, um, 7 p.m., with your debut novel, uh, The Boiling Season. Very exciting to be here. It's well, and and in the interest of full disclosure, um, Chris went to the MFA program here. I did. So this is a, a homecoming. It's exactly, it's a homecoming. <laughs> Although now you have several homecomings, um, probably because there could be one in Antioch, and there. Could oh be yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, as you here's hoping. Yes, <laughs> yeah. Well, well, welcome to Living Writers at WCBN, the, the station. So happy to to have you here, Thank Chris. Thank you. This is wonderful. And. Um, Let's the see. best greeting I ever had. To drive right into town and hop on the radio. It's wonderful. Exactly. Yes. And how was the drive? It, it was fine. We we split it over two days so we could stop and get uh, my wife's space fixation taken care of. So we could go to the Neil Armstrong Museum because she's writing a book now about the end of American space flight. So it was sort of a oh. it's a joint reading research trip. Actually, and I, I'm working. My new book is also sort of based in Detroit. So we we're, we're doing. Yeah, our, our trip is divided many different ways. Oh, this is wonderful, yeah. Chris. This yeah, is wonderful. And, and Margaret Lazarstein mm -hmm. was on the program. I think when Ashley David mm -hmm. That's was right. here. So with her her first book, and exactly. now she's on. It's a family affair. It is. The writing, <laughs> the, <laughs> lovely, and then little 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 Elliot will soon be any day now. Yes, his first children's. He's going to be doing the music shows, though. I think okay. that's more likely at this point. Okay. Oh, and talking about the music, what what did you choose for us? That first one, the opening one, Chris. Was that? Uh... Uh, that was some uh, Haitian rara. the The band is called uh, DJ Arara. They're a Arara is a sort of a, a festival music, a Haitian festival music. So the the book is loosely based on um in haiti um it's not actually named that but it's um loosely based on events there and uh so yeah I, the, the music i brought in is all a, a, or sort of a sample of different kinds of haitian music and so that rara is sort of a, a festival music with some traditional drums and those uh those awesome um horns mm. um they're sort of an activist group in, in brooklyn activist music community group but uh yeah. oh that's wonderful well, thanks for starting us off with that. To it, get us in the mood. It's true. I feel like we could Just go like marching around the sidewalk. and you, know. yeah, you feel like you should be in a parade when you're yes, listening to that. Yes, very processional. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, well, before we go too, too much further, I'll read the short bio in the back of Chris's book, um, The Boiling Season, um, just out three weeks ago uh, with HarperCollins. Um, and a quick thanks, um, many thanks, to Catherine and to Dennis for at HarperCollins for hustling the book over <laughs> to me in, in good time. And also, um, Chris, you have, you've, you've have, um, a wonderful editor also at HarperCollins. I do. I do. Yeah. Should we uh, give Terry, him a Ter shout out? Terry Carton. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. She's, she's, she's truly wonderful and, oh, and she, patient. Sorry. Yes. She, okay. <laughs> well, Terry is one of those names. But yes. She's a, she's a wonderful, very senior editor who sometimes, it, it, yeah, she's a, she's a wonderful presence and, font of knowledge and, and wisdom and, and kindness, too, somehow. Oh, well, hello, HarperCollins. <laughs> <I> <laughs> and okay, here we go. Christopher Hebert graduated from Antioch College, where he also worked at the Antioch Review. He has spent time in Guatemala, taught in Mexico, and worked as a research assistant to the author Susan Cheever. 
He earned an MFA in creative writing from the University of Michigan, Go Blue, and was awarded its prestigious Hopwood Award for Fiction. He lives in Knoxville, Tennessee, with his son and wife, the novelist Margaret Lazarus Dean. Um, and so, where do we go from there? So, so many <laughs> possibilities. It's true. I, I love that you, you worked on the Antioch Review way I back. love that, too. Ooh, yeah, That why? was the highlight. That was the highlight. Well, Antioch is just the, the most bizarre school on the planet, but uh, <clears throat> <laughs> it sounds it. And in my experience, you know, it's the unofficial slogan of Antioch was boot camp for the revolution. It's a very, yes. very politically oriented school. And I am not, you know, I, I have I'm politically oriented in some ways, but I'm not sort of a, you know, a, a boot camp revolutionary. So it was, it was somewhat of a strange fit for me. But uh, it also has the Antioch Review, which is one of the oldest and I, I, it, I think it might be maybe not the, anymore the longest continuously running uh, literary journal in the U.S., but it was for a long time. In any case, it's very old. Um, but I sort of loved it. It was just tucked away in the back corner of this library, and I don't think there was another student on campus, maybe one other student who knew the place even existed. So you knew about it before you went there, I did. Chris? I knew Is about it, and I, yeah, I think before I'd even set foot on campus, I'd made sure that they had hired me to be... Uh, an editorial assistant. Yeah, so I spent a lot of time at Antioch just hiding in this. It was just the, you know, the the dustiest little office in the entire place, but I, I loved it with, you know, filed drawer, like old library carrels full of typewritten submission cards. It was brilliant. It was exactly the sort of, you know, first exposure that a young person who wants to be a writer needs to have and yeah. sort of old-fashioned literary world. It was it was brilliant, yeah. It is it's part of the dream. It is. It is. And you had started your 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 academic career in Buffalo. Uh, no, right? even or, even or, or bef- even further north, even further oh. in the cold north woods, in a, a place called uh, Plattsburgh. It was also part of the State University of New York system, but it's it was way up in the Adirondacks. Yeah, I went there pretty much only because I wanted to go backpacking every weekend. I really the idea of you know studying or learning anything at that point in my life was not high on the priority, but. Hanging out in the Adirondacks was so. I think you write about it in your essay, My Aversion. I do. And and how you had at the time a girlfriend who sort of challenged you with mm-hmm. a, a political question about right, and then you then you started thinking, hey, I can start thinking. Yeah, yeah. Or it was reading. A, yeah, there was an essay I wrote about sort of my own sort of political identity, which plays into the, the book because the book has some political aspects to it. Um, and sometimes people are surprising. My family was especially surprising to learn that I'd written a, a so-called political book because they are not remotely political. And they were surprised to learn that I, I could be, given my completely apolitical upbringing. So, yeah, I, it was a sort of trajectory that started you know, with my wanting nothing but to go backpacking and ended with me going to the most political college in the planet, which was Antioch. Uh, so it was a, a sort of strange education in political awareness. And But it seems like also that with this real goal in mind of the Antioch Review. Yeah, that was a big part of it. I mean, I, I honestly, it's, it's hard to, in some ways to retrace my footsteps and mm. figure out how I got there because it was a strange choice. Even though I had started to care about such things, it was still someone in the back of my mind. But maybe it was I think part at that point in my life, I was just looking for the most the thing that was the most opposite from what I'd grown up with and that was that strange strange place and that's that's often that's the almost uh, well that's an impulse of the writer in some ways yeah it's the impulse of the writer the impulse of the youth too who just wants to reinvent himself but it turned out it turned out to be important in crafting i think my 
uh, not so much my aesthetics, I guess, but my interests as a writer um, in ways that I, I that I wouldn't have expected. Um, just sort of being an outsider in that sort of environment is something that's stuck with me and has shaped what I've what I've been writing about ever since. And this book and you know other projects as well. How so? Is it... <laughs> how, so? Um, <laughs> no, no. how so? Well, it's 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 complicated. Um, I before I wrote this book, I'd been I'd been working on something else that was uh, sort of about political activists, um, contemporary, um, you know, uh, not right right now ish. Um, w- was it fiction? Chris, it, yeah, it was, or was it, it, it was a novel. It's a novel, okay. and it's it's now the book that I've gone back to and I'm working on. Um, but I. You know, I, I sort of I went to Antioch and I was sort of surrounded by people who are just politically active. And I, I was not. I was just sort of, you know, the sort of writer who just likes watching people and observing. And I sort of hung out on the periphery. But I became fascinated in people who sort of had those sort of passions to change the world and to care about things and to put their, you know, their lives and their beliefs at, at risk to, to, to make a difference. And as much as I often have wanted to be that person, I just it just it's just not me. I just... Um, but I, I, I'm fascinated with those people. And so you know, that was one piece of it. And this book, so this book was shaped somewhat by that experience. It was also shaped by an experience I had teaching here at, um, at Michigan, actually. And let's see, it was, when, it was 2000, it was 2000, the year 2000. I was teaching a, uh, one of those freshman comp classes and we, you know, we sort of do those thematically about things that interest us. And it was the 2000 elections. And, um, so, you know, I had this incoming group of college freshmen who were turning 18, who were 18 and so they would be voting for the first time. So, you know, I had this idea, you know, it'd be really interesting is to... And powerful. Sh- and powerful, right. To shape this class around um, sort of thinking about political identities, you know, what it meant to be uh, an American, to have a political voice, not about issues. I, you know, I had no interest in having them talk about their stance on abortion or, or anything else like that, but just to think about, you know, what, is it, what does it mean to be an American, to have the right to vote and is it something that you care about you know and it's also part about having the luxury which we have here to not care about voting which i I guess i'll get to more in a minute but um what i discovered in that experience was mostly how little the students actually wanted to hear about it It, the the class was a complete bomb because for the most part they just it was not interesting i mean maybe some of them had the intention of voting but it was not something they wanted to think about you know thinking about political identity and what it meant to them it was just not just think how this would have gone over at antioch yeah exactly exactly (laughs) and you know i I suppose i should have expected that myself because you know i was that kid too you know it was not like i blame them for that because if someone had asked me to do that when i was 18 i would have i would have felt the same way i would have been like i don't i don't know i mean what does it mean but um so I love in your essay, my aversion that that people can find um, on the millions because uh, you posted this the end of February. Yeah, they published it, it in. Or, or published, uh, yeah, they published it the same day as the book, so it was March, oh, oh February twenty eighth. Yes. Oh, wonderful! Yeah, yeah. Oh, that was nice. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure it wasn't serendipitous. Synergies. It was, yes. Yeah. It seems like a master plot. <laughs> no. um, but but I do I do love in your essay how you said you hand out the reading list and there was that yeah. sort of that gro- that audible groan. Yeah. That, so there's these lovely. All of the oxygen left the room at that moment. <laughs> and there was the semester ahead <laughs> yeah and then there was a semester ahead um yeah and so i you know i had those two things in the back of my head sort of an interest in you know people who were politically active and an awareness that a lot of americans aren't um and i'm somewhere in between and so 
somewhat to get back to the book, I somewhat randomly read this article in the Times in 2002 about this um, place in Haiti, and I just sort of started reading about Haiti, and I, I became interested in this the, the sort of contrasts between a place like that and a place like this, where especially in the last several decades, where you know during the fall the well the the reign of the Duvaliers and the fall and the you know the rise and fall of various different regimes. How much politics in a in a country like that, and it's not just Haiti. You know, there are a lot of places like this where you know there's no avoiding politics. Politics is just everyone's daily life. You try to avoid it, and you know it still hunts you down. You know, you be, you can become an enemy of the state just by doing anything in places where there is you know that that sort of. Um, and uh, so I was just interested in that as you know the sort of luxury of living in a place like that that we don't have here. You know, here we can choose to just. I'm sorry, I said that backward. We have a luxury here to not pay attention to what's going on around us, and in a place like that, um, people don't. Um, and so that was sort of what propelled the, my interest in the book. And the uh, and why the decision to make it an Im- imaginary, um, unnamed <laughs> island in the Caribbean? What? Yeah, it's a good question because it is. Or an imagined. Yeah, it yeah, is. Not, it's not. Well, it's I a, guess it's both. It's, a, it's anyway. a strange compromise because it's a bit. Of, it's it's a little bit of both. It um. It was. It came later in the process. When I first started writing the book, I was very faithful to historical events and historical figures and timelines. Part of it was simply practical that I just couldn't actually be faithful. It was so the period that I'm writing about. There was so much rise and so much fall and so much turbulence that I just. It, it it wasn't possible to to make it make sense. We should you know? say that the book itself is 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 it's a big book, and so I think to have kind of considered all of those things, right. it would have maybe been triple the size. <laughs> right, right, and it just there, there was no way to craft. I think a, a narrative. You know, it's it's one. There have been there have been some brilliant uh, works of nonfiction about it, but you know the demands of fiction are such that it just doesn't. It, it doesn't lend itself well to really complicated exposition that it would have required to explain what was happening. So, the, you know, I, I really had to simple, simplify things, scale them back. Um, and also at a certain point, you know, it's always complicated to be an outsider writing about another place, another culture. And I, at a certain point, just decided that I... I wanted to make it clear that I was not trying to write sort of the essential story of the Haitian experience. I, you know, I, obviously I was, I was interested in certain aspects of it, and I was specifically interested in how it made me think about my own country. So, you know, I, I was invested in, in the story, um, but I just wanted to make a clear distinction between the actual place and the actual people and a sort of imagined version of it, and to make it clear that I'm not presenting this as you know, the definitive history of anything or, you know, an expose of a certain of the people of 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 Haiti. A fictional examination. Exactly. We're going to going to take a short break okay. and we'll be right back to hear more. Uh, this is wonderful. Chris's book, The Boiling Season. Today on Living Writers, Christopher Hebert is here. He'll be speaking. He'll be reading at Nicholas um, tomorrow at seven o'clock. We'll be right back.
Good afternoon. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today on the program, Christopher Hebert is here. His book, his debut novel, The Boiling Season, out with HarperCollins. A thank you to The Liz for engineering. Um, you're awesome, The Liz. And, uh, and Chris, thanks thanks again for, I should say, driving up a day early, too. Oh, it was worth it. Oh. For you and for Neil Armstrong. <laughs> That's right. And Wapaneka, Wapaneka, Ohio. Mm. Something like that. That's what a museum is. Oh, that's that's got a lovely ring to it. <laughs> yeah, I do want to go to that museum. We'll have to talk okay. after about that. <laughs> Otherwise, we'll get derailed, and the whole suddenly it'll be about the space museum. <laughs> um, uh, I'm already derailed. The music, Arcade Fire. Yeah. And so, yeah. so you've been you chose the the, the songs for today. I did. And I chose yeah. Oh, it's sort of a sampler of some different style. Obviously, that's not really Haitian music, but. Uh, what is it? Regine Chassonnier, I believe is her name. Um, she's one of the two leads of Arcade Fire, and she's from Haiti. I think she was born there. I mean, she left when she was pretty young. Um, but they're, they've been doing a lot of work, especially since the um, since the earthquake. They've been doing a lot of fundraisers. Shows and, and yeah. with all the yeah. proceeds going mm-hmm. to Haiti. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think and she, they're supposed to be working with Jonathan Demi, too, about a documentary of some kind. I don't think it's out yet. But. Well, it's interesting because you are in in one of one of the hats you wear is as to me. I always think of you as the music man of the University of Michigan Press. That's true, I'm that too. That's one of the first um, times I, I or we had a longer conversation where I knew mm-hmm. that that was part of your gig. Yes. So you're now editor at large. That's right. Yeah, I do that now. Um, a much smaller. When I was here, when we before we before we moved to Tennessee, uh, yeah, I was I was the um, um, the the I was handling a lot of different the sorts acquisitions. Of yeah, yes. the, yeah. It was it was the head of the acquisitions department. Um, and since we left, I, I do a much more uh, much smaller portion of that. I just do popular music and jazz. Uh, oh, just that. Yeah, just yeah. I just kept the basically I kept the cool stuff. Actually, I think I do a little <laughs> bit of fiction too. Not very much. I shouldn't say I think I do. I do a little bit of fiction, but not terribly. And much. you have the best job title ever editor at large <laughs> like that's anything at large is, yeah yeah i didn't even entirely know what it meant but it just sounded right it just seemed to fit the moment somehow it's, it's like you're ranging across yeah. the territories yeah, and exactly. <laughs> i can hear your theme song yeah, yeah. <laughs> um well you know what let's get back to the boiling season okay. um and and maybe it would be wonderful to hear some of it so could you I know you're going to hop in. I don't know what part you've, you're going to read for us, Chris, but what what do we need to know to hear what you're going to read? It'll be a surprise to me, too, what I decide <laughs> to read. Um, okay. Well, hey, I see tabs in there. <laughs> yeah. there, are, there are some tabs. Uh, well, maybe I should give a, just a little brief uh, description of what the book... You know, we've okay. talked about some of the sort of things that interested me in writing it. Um, so the book is about um, a young guy growing up in um, a turbulent Caribbean island, which we've revealed now is secretly Haiti, uh, who is... Alexander. <laughs> Alexander, right, who is, who is sort of driven to escape the life he's had, which is, you know, he sort of would characterize it as just full of poverty and violence and ignorance, and he sees really nothing nothing good in it and just wants to get away. We meet him at 19. Yes, and he's very, he's ambitious. He's We meet him as he's working as a, a valet for a man who's just been uh, elected senator. Um, and so he is just trying to, he's trying to get away from, from his, his roots. Um, and he, so he starts off by working as this valet, and then he gets an opportunity to 
uh, work as the um, the caretaker for an estate purchased by a wealthy American businesswoman who comes to town. And actually, I think that's probably maybe the, the best point, piece to read right now, and then maybe I can explain where things go from there, if that makes sense. Let me find that here. Uh, so the, the piece I'm going to read right now is the moment where uh, Alexandra is introduced to the American businesswoman. This whole thing has been sort of set up by a friend of his who he's, he's met in the time he's spent at this uh, hotel where the senator has his uh, lunches and plays tennis and wines and dines with the wealthy elite of the island. Um, and so he's met this older man who knows of this, this derelict estate um, that was once this beautiful, this beautiful contained sort of luscious gardens and this beautiful manor house, but it's, it's, um, become derelict, but he managed to convince this American woman to, to, to buy it. So, uh, the eye here is, is Alexandra. I do not know what I expected in Madame Freeman. I had encountered few white people in my life. Only the occasional reporter and a few ambassadors and visiting dignitaries at the Marcus's parties. Interactions largely limited to the refreshing of drinks. Monsieur Guigny found Madame Freeman in the club room, and as soon as we entered she rose from her seat with a smile. Madame Freeman was a slight woman in what I guessed to be her late forties. Her hair was blonde, but it appeared to be in the early stages of turning something else, brown or gray or silver. It swept across her head in a bold, purposeful wave, curling at the bottom so that it cupped her pearl-studded ears. She wore a cream-colored skirt and a matching jacket, trimmed with black and closed with brass buttons. I'm very pleased to meet you, she said, stretching out her hand to greet me. Her perfume bore the faint, sweet trace of heliotrope and peach blossoms, but there were darker undertones, too, of something I could not quite identify. I've been looking forward to this, Madame Freeman said. And before I could apologize and explain my own change of heart, she had pressed me into a chair. A waiter appeared at my elbow with a drink, which he set down in front of me with a disapproving frown he intended for only me to see. I wished Monsieur Guinea could take a seat as well, but he continued to stand beside the table, concerned, no doubt, about being seen socializing with a guest. Madame Freeman had kind eyes, their lids lightly dusted a rosy peach, and the way they looked into mine, I could see she felt no discomfort. This seemed to me both odd and inappropriate, for there was nothing normal about our meeting like this. I could feel, and in some cases see, the reporters crammed into the surrounding tables watching Madame Freeman and Monsieur Guinea and me. Monsieur Guinea's hotel uniform made it clear who he was. But who was I? As on the day they had seen me here with Senator Marcus, the reporters must have assumed I was someone significant, someone perhaps with inside information concerning the constitutional crisis they had come to cover. Perhaps they should have been speaking with me themselves. I could have taken pleasure in their attention, savoring the pride it gave me to have worked my way into a position where I might be mistaken for someone important. But instead, every eye reminded me how easily the story of my being here might find its way to Senator Marcus's ear. Mr. Guinea tells me you're familiar with my new estate, Madame Freeman said. Oh, yes, Monsieur Guinea cut in, almost as much as me. And grateful though I was to have him speaking on my behalf, I could not help worrying about other things he might have told her, and how many of them were similarly lies. Sensing, perhaps, my temptation to confess the truth, Monsieur Guinea quickly added, and he knows precisely what needs to be done. I'm so glad to hear of it, Madame Freeman said, and I nodded miserably, accepting the part I was playing in this deception. 
When can you begin? she said. I felt what little English I at the time possessed trickle away, leaving me with only, yes. With a nod she showed that this, the only word I had managed to utter over the course of the conversation, was the very one she had been waiting to hear. Thank you, Chris. So that's the moment when he um, has a, a bit of a crisis of uncertainty about leaving the senator to go work for this new place. But this place sort of represents everything that he has been been hoping to have because it's remote. It's outside the capital. The you know all of the things that he doesn't like about his his former life, he believes at least won't be able to reach him here. Mm. And at this point, his father is still alive, Chris, because yes. his mother had died. His mother died uh, when, she, when he was young. His father is still alive, and he and his father have a, a complicated relationship in the ways of of fathers and sons. Uh, yeah, his father. Um, is a much more community-oriented guy and really wants his son to stay where he is and to do things to help people there. He's sacrificed a lot for his son's education, and so he's more than a little Sold disappointed. Sold the family home, right, for example. Right, right. So he's more than a little disappointed that his son's ambition is to really just to escape, to not do anything for his people or with his people, and to just create his isolated little world where he can be by himself. And when you, when these characters, the the father and Alexandra, when he was coming, when they came to you, how formed were they, Chris? Like, what did you, um, for example, some of the 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 revelations that we we don't need to speak about mm-hmm. that can be just sort of a <laughs> teaser thrown out sure, there to sure. the listeners. Um, these that that Alexandra the learns at the end. Mm-hmm from Paul mm-hmm. that's not saying too much um, about his own father right. you know when you're being told something about someone that you have these complicated intimate relationships but right. then perhaps you don't know this other faith so how much f- do you know about these because this is again as I say like it's a meaty book so this <laughs> yeah. is um, you've spent eight years with it yeah, more a long or time. less a long time. what um, do you know about them well I'm I'm not one of those writers who's very good at outlining things and so I tend to just enter into a project and wander around until I, I find my way so so you're sort of yeah I just I sort of forward. as a writer I just sort of like the experience of discovery you know I like the sort of discovery that you experience as a reader and although it's it's about the most inefficient way you can write a book I just I just sort of like going in and seeing where it, it takes me I waste a lot of pages that way. Um, what do you mean when you say that? I mean, I'll just uh, I'll just start writing. I mean, when I first started writing this book, I mentioned earlier that um, you know it sort of followed a timeline and, and events. There were hundreds of pages in which that involved other other characters and um, other sort of events, historical events that are happening, overlapping at certain times. You know, the things that I collapsed. I didn't collapse until after I'd written them. So I did I did actually write, you know, the entire sort of expansive thing. Um, but I guess to answer your question, you know, I mentioned earlier that part of the inspiration for this book was an article that I read. It was a very random article that I came upon. Um, the article was about this place. It was about an estate, the estate that, the, um, that inspired the book, in which um, there was a sort of battle going on. The title, there was this very romantic title to the article about, you know, this battle... Um, Oh, invaders in in uh, Catherine Dunham's Eden, invaders from hell, and it was about this estate that was contained within it, the last sort of piece of a tropical preserve on the entire island. Haiti has been ravaged for decades, um, and 
it's... And you did go to yeah, the, yeah, Haiti was... after the book mm-hmm. was finished. You right. waited. Right. Yes, I was there recently. Um, and it's environmentally, it, it's just, it's been, it's had, there are very few trees and there, there are all sorts of problems. And, but this estate, it, it still to this day contains one of the last, probably, you know, the last sort of little piece of tropical forest. So, so the article was about this battle between, on the one hand, people, the owners and caretakers who were trying to preserve it you know, an admirable thing. And on the other hand, these squatters who were living there and some of them were armed and others of them were just sort of trying to live. And so I I was really fascinated by this conflict between these two parties. On the one hand, the party of, you know, preservation, let's preserve this beautiful, this resource that's almost extinct on this island. And on the other hand, people who are just, you know, it's an extremely impoverished place. So who is right? Right. And so, so to answer your question, I sort of started out with those those two poles. And so Alexander was on the side of the caretaker. So he was the one who wanted to preserve this place. And so part of what interested me, well, who is this person? How, what would it mean to be that person in this place where you know, everything is, is so political and taking a stance like that? You know, in this country, it's not very controversial to want to preserve something because you know, we have a lot of space. You know, it is sometimes, but there's a lot of space and there are things that can just be preserved. And we can all agree and that that's resources. a great idea. Yeah. But what does it mean in a place like that to preserve something where people are really desperately in need of things? You know, like what, what does it mean to preserve this sort of opulent, decadent little preserve and to keep people, the impoverished people out, you know, it's a, it's a difficult choice to make there. And so I was interested in how that would play out, you know? And so essentially the book started from that kernel. I wanted to create these two sides on the one hand, who were these squatters who had taken over this derelict estate and who were the people trying to preserve it and what happens when they come together and how do you resolve a conflict in which you sort of want both sides to win? You want the place to be preserved, but you also want these people who desperately need shelter and are fighting for their lives to be able to do that. So We're going to take a short break, and then we'll come back, and we'll hear more, okay? From Christopher Hubert, his his debut novel, The Boiling Season, out with HarperCollins. You've got living writers on WCBN, FN, FM, Ann Arbor. I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be back. Welcome back. I'm T. Hetzel. You have Living Writers on WCBN-FM 
Ann Arbor today on the program. Christopher Hebert is here. His novel, The Boiling Season. Um, yeah, it was so lovely to hear part of it there too. The the narrator, Alexandra, he, Alexandra. <laughs> I'm not saying it right. Oh, I, don't I, first I said it. Alexander and it sounded so Oh dear. <laughs> um, we won't be taking it. If we took a pronunciation test, I would I would fail when? myself. Don't let the last name fool you. The the French in my in Oh, my, am I I tell me I'm not Well in, in Haiti of course name, Chris. I am I would be a bear. And in you know different parts of the country and closer to Louisiana, I am a bear. How do you down where we live now, I'm more often a bear. But do well, you like that or how do you feel about that? Yeah, well, I've never been a big fan of Hebert, so I, I welcome the Abear. I find Abear much easier to say. Should we start then? No, we no. Should. Okay. You know, it, well, it was a, it was sort of a crisis. You know, uh, when I, this book was when the book was published, because it was you know I finally had to make the decision: Am right. I going to restore the family's lost accent aigu over the you know the little mark over the e that signals to everyone that it's Abear? But that just was it like, a, a discussion uh, over like supper at a, a family holiday or, or no? It was a no? discussion that went entirely in my head, but it was. <laughs> You know, how pretentious would that be for an accent to suddenly appear in my name? Would any of my friends talk to me anymore? So There'd I'd be d- some teasing, yeah. I'd imagine. <laughs> but also, such a strange... Because then the the, the setting of the book, every, everything lends mm-hmm. itself to a... <laughs> yeah, and uh, Madison Smart Bell was reading it, and he, he uh, wrote a trilogy of novels about the Haitian Revolution, and the protagonist of those three books is Dr. Hebert. So he, he was all sorts of confused when he saw this book and thought you know, his, his protagonist had come <laughs> had to life. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. exactly. Oh, yeah. that's wonderful. Yeah, but we, uh, my, my, uh, my Hebert's came over the, the northern border. They're, they're French Canadians. So, yeah, no, uh, no ties, unfortunately. Hmm. Well, you say, you, you were saying, Chris, before the break, that there was this, um, this the, the kernel like of what became, became the story was mm-hmm. this collision mm-hmm. between what would this man who was going to be the, the, the preservationist of the, <laughs> in the, and the squatters, for lack of a better right, word, right. or for the people, right? The people. Um, <laughs> we can call them the squatters. <laughs> I know, but they are the people. What am I saying The squatting here? people. <laughs> it's hard on the knees and other things. But um, I wondered if when you were, so when you, when this, this article that you read and this germination uh, occurred a long time ago, and then you said you had this other novel mm-hmm. going mm-hmm. as well. So what happened with this one? Was it something where you started to sketch it out or you wrote, was it, was it ever something that you felt could be contained in a short story? Or was it always something that felt like sort of epic or so? Or yeah, sweeping? no, I, I think it was... It, the, the sweepingness of it, I think, was pretty clear to me right from the start. And, and it didn't take me very long to decide that uh, this was the one I needed to be working on, not the other one. Uh, you know, I'd been working on the other one for a lot of years, and it was close to done. But I still was struggling with it in certain mm. ways. And this one... Wow, but that's kind of... Yeah. That's amazing then. To... Yeah, well, it's been interesting to come back because I'm, I'm, I'm working on that one again now. So I'm returning to a book that's... It's no longer quite as done as it was because I've decided to make a lot of changes to it, but I'm returning to a book that's now about half finished. Um, but yeah, I just decided that this project, it sort of planted itself in my head, sort of complete-ish. I had a sense of, you know, what what was going to happen and why it mattered um, in a way that with the other book was still somewhat of a struggle. I was still putting some of the pieces together. So even though I didn't really know who a lot of the characters were and I didn't know, there were a lot of things I didn't know. 
I just had a sense that it added up to something, that this conflict, or, or more to the point, the clash of these, these two conflicts, um, was just really important. And it was important to me because of the things that we started talking about when we opened the show. You know, this sort of, it sort of replicated my own, my own complicated feelings about my political identity. And, you know, so on, on the one hand, the sort of my fascination with people who are you know, politically active, who are, you know, engaged in revolution. And on the other hand, the part of me that's very reserved and, you know, who likes to sit in the corner quietly reading books. So, And after it, George W. was reelected, you turned the radio off for a year because <laughs> exactly. you couldn't bear to hear the news or the... Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It turned out I wasn't quite as neutral as I sometimes pretend. Um, but yeah, so so in some ways, this this book, it personified the two different parts of my own sort of the warring factions within me, you know, the, the sort of conflicts that I always felt about wanting this and wanting that and wanting so to see pour, what... It, do you pour the desires then into it, Chris, to see what happened? Because what were you wanting to see? Perhaps that's what you were just yeah, going to say. Yeah. Well, it's, you know, it's it's always interesting to talk about this book because as you n- no doubt noticed in that excerpt that I read that um, the narrator is not white and I am. And so, you know, people often have a lot of questions about that, understandably. Um, but one of the things that they assume, too, is that I, I couldn't, that this narrator couldn't possibly have anything to do with me. You know, he's an impoverished person living in this place that couldn't be any more different from my own world. And in a lot of ways, that's absolutely true. There's no disputing that. But who are these people? Like, like when, when you mention just, this, just readers, people, just casual. Have they already sort of started, um, responding like on your on your website or, well it's it's uh, interviewers and reviewers and readers just people conversationally and at readings that i've given mm-hmm. people stand up and say this is very strange that you're mm-hmm. you know you have a first person protagonist who is this caribbean guy and you are um, you're standing in front of me and you are obviously not that so what gives and had they believed you to be a caribbean then when they read the novel or or is that the I'd, surprise or um, I, I don't I don't know. I guess I don't know entirely what people go in thinking, but um, it's sort of a puzzle that that interests them, like how that happens, Be- mm-hmm. especially, I think, because it's a debut novel. And the thing about de- debut novels is it's supposed to be, you know, they're, they're always autobiographical coming of age stories. Mm-hmm. And so someone picking up this book thinking, well, it's a debut novel, so it's probably a biographical coming of age story or but autobiographical. But psych- psychologically yeah. or, or challenging your own ideas yeah. of politics, so, so you're for, saying it is. In for that me, way. in a lot of ways, it is. But I think no one else on the face of the earth would see that except for me because there are some n- notable differences between the two of us. But for me, I, I identify a lot with the protagonist. Um, I feel like there's a lot of me, a lot of me in him. Um, but yeah, it's, it's just not a, it's not a thing that a lot of other people. Would it be the observational voice? Like when you're in this imagined, um, Caribbean Island Mm -hmm. nation, um, it seems like the, the observer's eye is so clear Mm -hmm. in your narrator. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's, there's the observer's eye and there's just that, that sense of someone who really wants to escape and, you know, to find, to create a new life for himself and to distance himself from things that he doesn't, just doesn't identify with. Um, and, and that sort of thing that I, that article that you've mentioned, um, several times, um, you know, that's the sort of thing I talk about a lot in there, just that part of me as well, that the part that just sort of wants to remove myself from things, who's not really comfortable being, you know, in the context of politics, you know, a very political, politically engaged, active person and sort of likes to watch from the sidelines. And this is 
a protagonist who very much wants to live on the sidelines. He just wants to completely distance himself from everything that's going around him. There's the upheaval, and he wants to be as far away from that as he can. And he thinks he can create this 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 remote place where none of that upheaval will ever ever reach him. And that's that's an instinct and a desire that I feel. You know, I, I think a lot of us feel. You know that the desire to just go live in the woods somewhere and not have to worry about, you know, no cares of the world and just the, you know, the crazy stuff that's happening in Washington, D.C. or wherever it happens to be. But just you just want to just have a, a world where you don't have to worry about anything. But, you know, the, the beauty around you. Hmm. And that's uh, that seems like an in imp- so maybe this is one of the reasons um i because i was struck on also on uh on your website chris i think and it's probably also on the harper collins site too is there's a uh, a lovely short video clip that's sort of standing for the book that i think you oh, directed the, the trailer the tra- <laughs> or the, yeah the book's Dire- trailer directed is a strong word <laughs> oh, had a hand in well at least it said directed i know it did it did i had a few laughs when the I was asked about how the credits should read. I said, well, whatever whatever you want. So I think, I, yeah, it was, I don't know, written and directed by me. Yeah, and it was made by uh, my sister-in-law, oh. Laura Dean, who is a, who was a film editor in Seattle. And uh, yeah, she was really cool to work with. Uh, we put this thing together using a lot of, um, of historical footage. I was, I was able to find a lot of cool stuff from various archives and, S- several f- films had just been released from, I think, the CIA archives, very timely. And the most fascinating thing of all was there is a um, one of those videos actually contains an interview with the guy who is responsible for building the resort that the entire book revolves around. It was this uh, French guy um, who in on the film is shirtless and he has these big gold chains and he's just talking about building this beautiful resort in the midst of these slums. Um, because that's the thing about this estate that, uh, that, that Alexandra is building is, is taken care of. Um, about halfway into the book, the, the American businesswoman decides to develop this estate into this posh decadent jet setting resort. Um, and, that at this point in the country's history um there's been some stability it's sort of a fake stability it's sort of a a stability that comes from a sort of perfected oppression just the machine of oppression had gotten so 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 good that um you know things had uh, leveled off a little bit everyone believed it (laughs) (laughs) well everyone was just you know terrified and just you know was was walking the the straight line um so they managed they managed to build this incredible resort um and so there's this interview with the uh financier uh at the time of the building of the host of the estate but even then the slums of the city this is built uh, it was the real place is built outside port-au-prince um in the, in the hills outside but even at the time that the hotel was being built the slums of port-au-prince were expanding outward and they'd already started to grow outside of the estate and so the interviewer asks... How unsightly for the, the, <laughs> exactly. the posh jet setters. Exactly. Well, the, and the interviewer asks the, the man who's financing this, what, what are you thinking? You, he mm-hmm. says, uh, this is more or less, he says, you're, you're gonna be have, your guests are going to be coming in in open Rolls Royces, driving through some of the poorest slums in the world. And the, uh, 
the financier says, yeah, well, it, it doesn't matter because the people here are nice. And they they're are, nice. They're happy. And, and they're happy. Right. Says he says they're nice and they're happy. And he says, you know, the, the, he says the Americans have a great word to groove. They're just they're coming here to groove. So he just he just dismisses out of hand all of this stuff that's evident to everybody else that this is not a stable place and this is a, a really bad place to be building this incredibly decadent resort of which I think Mick Jagger was also an investor. He was a favorite. Um, yeah, so it was a, just a very strange choice to build this thing here. Um, and the results are, are somewhat predictable. I think I would you know, not spoil too much of the ending to say that, you know, this doesn't last very long. The, you know, the slums continue to expand and the upheaval continues to worsen. And so this Eden-like place that they managed to build, it turns out to be quite temporary. The boiling season. Exactly. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. Today on the program, Christopher Hebert is here. His novel, The Boiling Season. I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be back. Welcome back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today on the program, Christopher Hebert is here. His novel, The Boiling Season. Um, and thanks again to the Liz for engineering and all these lovely transitions um, with Chris's musical choices. Um, and and so on, on this video that before the break we were talking about, Chris, um, and also I think probably on your book jacket mm -hmm. too, um, there's a great quote by Charles Baxter where he says he asks all the right questions. You know, what, what questions did you even know you were asking? What do you think <laughs> about that, Chris? Well, I think, I, yeah, I don't know exactly um, which questions he had in mind, but f for me uh, it was uh, the question about you get to get back to that conflict or the, that clashing of conflicts, like what what it means to um, you know want to remove yourself from you know remove yourself from political upheaval and turmoil. You know the the costs that come along with making a decision like the one to build this beautiful decadent place in the middle of slums. What is that? What does that mean? Um, and I didn't want it to be simple. You know, I, it was important to me that this book not be a didactic, mm. you know, um, just a dismissal of the craziness of the people doing this. Because I, I actually, because like I said, there's a part of me that really understands and identifies with that and, and, you know, appreciates the impulse to do what they did, the desire to make something beautiful, you know, to to restore some of the glory and glamour of this, you know, this, this island that's been large ravaged in a lot of ways yes your narrator he always has this this voice like even for the the section you chose to read for us chris he, where he has this sense of propriety or what is proper like he has this sense of what he believes is the right and wrong of the rules mm -hmm. in some way which is is 
is in endearing and he observes others like his friend Paul even from the 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 early days when they were young like when they were still 19 or so um before he was really fully with Senator Marcus or so but um and certainly before um the estate um where he observed things about Paul mm-hmm. and his his powers that how he could be like a motivator of the people or a man of action mm-hmm. Um, yes. even if he's a small time, you know, swim, swindler at the moment on the docks. Yeah. His, his friend, Paul, who in some ways is responsible for him getting, uh, his, his initial job with the Senator, um, who well, is, well, his mother yeah, right. <laughs> and he, yeah, he's sort of a, a little swindler who runs these little, little smuggling operations, you know, out of his mother's closet. Um, but grows, he, he becomes sort of a, a kingpin over the course of the book. Um, yeah, it was important to me that. You know the the impulses behind Alexandra and the, and these desires be something legitimate and 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 real and not something that could be mocked. I mean, when I when I say that I you know I was interested in this conflict, it's not because I wanted to expose how crazy it was to be Alexandra and wanting to flee from all of this stuff, but because I just I just I really I wanted to you know acknowledge that that is a way that a lot of people live that I in part live and and I just I wanted uh, to know what that meant. And so yeah, he's. These are the questions. <laughs> yeah, they, well, these are the questions for me, and they may have been slightly different for, for Charles Baxter. But um, you know, he is he is a very unreliable narrator. At the same time, he sees he sees a lot of things, and he has ideas about the way the world should be. But it's very uh, he's blind to also a lot of things. Mm. I mean, he, he's because he's dismissed so much. Um, you know, he's decided which things are right and which things are wrong, and the things that are wrong he wants to escape altogether. But and so if, concerned about what others view as his position right, is, and right. yeah, and throughout the book, everyone is calling to his attention how strange it is his attitude toward um, you know his own people, especially yes, the, the woman who buys the estate in a, a number of places, you know, goes operates under the assumption that he. You know, this is his island, and he understands what's going on. And it's always Mm-mm. revealed to her, to, to her surprise, that he doesn't think of himself. He, uh, you know, I mean, there's a point in the book where of the he doesn't think of himself right, of the people, right? Really. You know, and he says at one point, you know, I don't, I don't think that just because I happen to share an island that you know I should have to be these people. Why can't yes. why can't my people be people like you know the, the successful people like the senator and. Um, you know, that it shouldn't be, a, you know, an accident of birth to decide who your people are. If you want, you know, if you feel your people should be like this American businesswoman, then that should be your right. And he, you know, he wants that to be his world, which, you know, you can, you can turn and make sound like a, a diabolical thing. But for me, it, it I, I wanted to take it seriously as an impulse that is worth you know, caring about. Well, that that seems to speak to then the the genuineness of the story itself. I hope so. <laughs> wait, wait, in particular, one particular story. Well, well no, your your novel, the or the the boiling season. Mm-hmm. Like, what makes it then something? Because uh, that's a story that is. Um, like even as you said, like what your feelings about it, um, as you'd been, you know, those years of writing and 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 caring about writing and working as an editor, even and and then feeling like this idea comes to you, as this, this this almost as itself already, mm-hmm. right? It seems that you and so that you're not and you're not let it, going to let it be, um, 
like as you said, like a a, a, a mockery of one of the sides, mm-hmm. or it's so it's like this just trying to discover. Yeah, the, it, it feels like a very in a in a very personal book, which is the thing that I, I, yeah. I mentioned being very strange to a lot of people. But to me, it's a very a very personal book, despite the fact that it's set in a very different place and a cast of, you know, there's only one American in it. Um, despite that, I, it feels to me like a very personal book. And I, I think it's just... It's Why a, didn't you go to Haiti beforehand, too? Since that was sort of the island, like, what was that deal with yourself, Chris? And, yeah. yeah. I, I Initially, when I first <clears throat> started taking this project seriously and realized that I was going to pursue it, I had every intention of spending a lot of time there. Uh, and a couple of things happened. Um, one is that I made the decision that we talked about earlier not to name the place. Yes. Um, and once I made that decision that I couldn't really be faithful to a lot of the complexity, um, I decided that I wanted to make a clear distinction between a work of the imagination and a work of fact. So that was that was one of them. I just decided that I didn't want to do that. Um, this was going to be just something that came out of my head and I would take responsibility for the, the error, the things that seemed wrong to, to others. So how, that, how could that not be highly personal? The, um, oh, the fact. Right? Because it's coming literally it, from it, your mind. Yeah, it came out of see. my head. Yeah. <laughs> and the other thing was it just, uh, I felt at a certain point, the more I learned about the country, the more uncomfortable I felt going there as someone with a camera and a notebook and just taking notes about people's you know, very, very difficult lives. I just, you know, there are a lot of, I've done a lot of traveling in, you know, the third world. So and, you were in Guatemala? Yeah, I spent time in Guatemala and rural Mexico. And, you know, I, I've traveled around and doing done the thing that writers do is sit in, you know, co- coffee shops and take notes about Watch. the things going on. But I just felt like I couldn't, I could not do that in a place like Haiti where it's, you know, they're just, it's, it's a, such a difficult place to live. Um, and I, I just, I didn't want to be there feeling like I was following people around while they were leading their really difficult lives. Some so that, just so that I could write a book. Yeah. And, you know, you could say, well, I'm sort of doing that anyway. It's just doing it in my imagination. But it was a distinction that made a difference to me. I felt like, you know, I would support this book on my shoulders, but I would not support it on theirs. And so what was it like to, to, to finally go there? So when did you, when did you go? Tell us about that. Uh, just recently. I, yeah. So I decided, you know, I still wanted to go, but I decided that I would wait until the book was over until I could go and I could go and just be there, not with, you know, ulterior motives to do research and to take notes. You know, the book was already done and it was coming out. So there was, there's was nothing for me to. What know. was the sense of it? Like seeing it though? Cause I'm wondering, so you've, you've been with it in your well, it was, mind's eye. Yeah. Well, part of it, I went with a group. There's a, a great uh, organization in Knoxville that, um, has been doing a lot of developmental work in a sort of rural community. there, building schools and hospitals and clinics and things. So I went down with them. There were, I think, oh, 10 of us maybe. Um, but yeah, it was strange because uh, only, I think, one of them had been to Haiti before. The person who was leading the group had been there a couple of times. One other person had been there once for a very short period. Um, and so the, mostly the group, they didn't know much of anything about Haiti. And then there was me, who has spent the last eight years studying everything there is to know. You know, in order to write this book out of my imagination, I had to do an incredible amount of research and, you know, read and just everything there is. Um, and so I landed in this place just uh, you know sort of a scholar of 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 Haiti 
which I think was was sort of strange for a lot of them because they were there. You know, they cared about Haiti, but they were there because this was some of the. This was a. This group is connected with a, a church um, in Haiti. It's called the the, the uh, Haiti Outreach Program. Um, so a lot of them were parishioners. They were students. They were people. You know, who who were interested in in helping and making a difference. But the fact that it was Haiti was not you know, their, their top priority. And for me, it was the fact that it was Haiti was everything for me. So I was constantly talking, you know, about, you know, I was just obsessed and fascinated with the history and, uh, you know, talking about everything we're seeing and, and, and a lot of them were just, I don't, you know, they, they didn't know what to make of, of me, this strange person. Who... You were almost the de facto tour guide. Now <laughs> yeah. I can see you like, and over there you'll yeah. see. <laughs> so, and it was sort of strange in that way to be that person, but to also not actually, you know, I was, I was seeing it for the first time, but uh, and in a lot of other ways, I felt like it had become, um, you know, a huge part of my life. Yes. Um, but it was it was amazing to be there and and to see what it was like in person. And fortunately, uh, I, I was not. You know, there was always that danger that I would go and discover that my entire book was wrong. And, and <laughs> but then it's an imaginary, That's unnamed right. exactly. island in the Caribbean. Exactly. <laughs> Chris, thanks so much for being on the program today. Thank you for having me on. It was a lot of fun. And and thank you for reading to us from the boiling season. Um, Just out, just hot off the presses, folks, this March from HarperCollins, the boiling season. Chris will be reading tomorrow at Nicola's Bookshop. Um, Thanks again. And I promise to read a different piece. Okay, so there you go. I think I promise. (laughs) (laughs) You've been listening to Living Writers today on the program. Christopher Hebert um, has been here at the boiling season, his novel. I'm T. Hetzel. Until next time. This is Free Speech Radio News for Wednesday, the 21st of March, 2012, in Los Angeles. I'm Dorian Marina. Coming up, as U.S. gas prices rise, some lawmakers push to eliminate excessive speculation, while others call for more drilling. Pakistan's lawmakers call for an end to U.S. drone strikes and an apology from the U.S. after a deadly airstrike along the Afghan border. And we'll go to India, where women in an agricultural collective have launched a land rights movement. Those stories and more. But first, this news. I'm Jess Burns with headlines for FSRN. Official celebration of the Kurdish New Year Festival of Nuros were canceled today after violence erupted in several Turkish cities Tuesday. One police officer died of gunshot wounds, and a Kurdish politician and several demonstrators were badly injured. From Istanbul, FSRN's Hermione G. reports. Clashes between police and demonstrators began on Sunday in Istanbul and Diyarbakir, Turkey's largest Kurdish city. Haji Zengin, a representative of the pro-Kurdish Peace and Democracy Party, or BDP, was killed after being hit on the head by a tear gas canister as police tried to disperse protesters. The BDP had previously requested permission to hold Nuraj celebrations in the two cities on Sunday, but government officials refused, saying that violence was more likely to occur if festivities took place over the weekend. All celebrations would have to be held on Wednesday, March 21st, they said, the official start of the festival.
BDP co-chair Salahat 